it's about a, a recalibration of our internal compass of vitality, how we sense ourselves as part of something much bigger. Welcome to What Could Possibly Go Right, a project of the Post Carbon Institute. We interview cultural scouts to help us see more clearly so we can act more courageously. I'm Vicki Robin, your host. My guest today is Vanessa de Oliveira Andreote. I will read your credentials in a sec, but I want to put my own words on my sense of Vanessa. She resolutely stands between academia and indigenous wisdom, working with a team of academics, elders, and students to distinguish the agonies of modernity and decline and to embody the humility and responsibility of stewardship. Perhaps that's as opaque as Vanessa's official biography, but it points to the enormity of the dedication to let modernity in us die and let a new and ancient human blueprint be born in us. So officially Vanessa holds a Canada Research Chair in Race, Inequalities and Global Change at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, BC. And drawing on different critiques of colonialism and human exceptionalism, her research examines the interface between historical, systemic, and ongoing forms of violence and the material and relational dimensions of unsustainability within modernity. Vanessa is one of the founding members of the Gesturing Decolonial Futures Collective uh, and in Earth's Care, an international network of indigenous communities located mostly in Canada and Latin America. We love bringing you these inspiring voices and invite you to chip in some financial loves so we can keep doing it. Now, here's Vanessa. Welcome to What Could Possibly Go Right, uh, where we ask cultural scouts, people with a long view and a deep knowledge to put on their headlamps and peer into the fog and and tell us what green shoots they see, what possibilities are, are opening up as old systems are unraveling. Yeah, and, and welcome, Vanessa. As, as uh, you and your colleagues well know, we're in a time of pandemic with no end in sight and economic precarity and racial justice uprising and extreme polarization and on and on and on. Yay, 2020. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm particularly interested in how you will answer our question because you seem to not just talk about what's wrong and how to fix it, but talk from a more uh, indigenous way of seeing the world. So what's going wrong for Western civilization could actually be something going right for the cultures who were here before Europeans came and settled and owned and exploited and made an unsustainable paradise for ourselves. So um, all that said, Vanessa, here we are, and here's my question. Given all of that, what could possibly go right? So first of all, thank you so much for the invitation to talk today. Um, I think I'm gonna start with the uh, proverb that we have in Brazil. I was born and raised in Brazil. And in Brazil, we say that in a situation of a flood, it's only when the water reaches your hips your bum, actually, <laughs> only when the water reaches the bum, that it's actually possible for people to swim. Uh, 
So as the water is only at the ankles or at the knees, it's only possible to walk or to wade. And I, I work with a collective of artists, researchers, um, indigenous knowledge keepers that uses this metaphor to talk about what's happening today, the, the situation of social and ecological collapse, um, and also to offer an analysis of the violence and unsustainability of what we call modernity coloniality, the, the systems that underwrite our livelihoods. But I think what's important in the, in the analogy is that we can only see what is going to be possible. We will only be able to see what's going to be possible as the water reaches the bump, right? So if, if the water is only at the knee, we can only walk and, and be who we have come to be and learn from the process, from what's violent and unsustainable in the current system. So as the water is rising um, and the temperatures are rising as well, in climate, uh, in the in the climate emergency, it is important to probably learn from or be taught by the communities that have been swimming for a long time against the tide that we have brought to their communities of colonialism, of of capitalism, of unsustainability, and of violence. So the teachings from communities that we call communities in high intensity, high stakes. Um, high-risk struggles are very different from, uh, from the teachings that we find in low-intensity struggles, right? So it's important to, to bring these teachings together, not as a form of um, learning uh, like from them the responses, but understanding that they can uh, show us that it is possible to swim. So my analogy to swimming uh, is also related to accountability, responsibility, and um, making connections that people avoid making as they are walking. So in swimming, you have to have a very different relationship with the water. You have to become the, you have to remember that you are mostly water and you have to become water as well. You have to have a different relationship with your breathing. You have to be able to read the context in a very different way. And it is this capacity to hold space for these things that I believe uh, the waters themselves are going to, <laughs> to force us to reconnect with, to reconnect with capacities that have been exiled by um, the current system, the, the modernity, coloniality, and its violence and unsustainability, we will be able to um, realize that we are part of a, a wider metabolism, that our own metabolism, our, um, our bodies are nested within something much larger. And we won't be able to deny that anymore. So the indigenous communities we're working with, and I'm, I'm not saying that they have the answers, and I'm not saying even that um, all of them are uh, welcoming <laughs> uh, social and ecological collapse. They know it's going to be hard. Uh, they call it the uh, collapse of the house that was built um, through colonialism. And they know they have to learn to leap very fast back, otherwise it, it will fall on their heads. It's already built on their backs. It's gonna fall on their heads if they are quick. So many of them, uh, many of these communities uh, are preparing for uh, facing the removal of the 
the very basic securities that the government, especially in Brazil, um, used to provide and is not providing anymore. Um, but what, they, what we say, the way we understand collapse for them um, is something else, right? So what we may be afraid of or uh, forecast in terms of lack of access to certain securities and, and welfare has not been the case already <laughs> for many communities. And this connection between it not being the case for many communities and us having access to that as a result of these other people not having access is something that we will, we will probably start to realize more and more. But I don't think this is a, um, a moral awakening uh, in the strict sense of the term. It's more an existential thing that comes from a disillusionment, a gradual disillusionment with the satisfactions that we have, with the consumption, comforts, enjoyments, securities that we have taken for granted. Because these comforts, enjoyments, securities, and consumptions are actually based on violence and unsustainability somewhere else. And we won't be able to deny that anymore. And in this um, disillusionment, disenchantment, we will also have to uh, compost <laughs> all the waste in our project, we call it shit, all the individual and collective shit that has accumulated, that, has, that is saturated. And in order to do that, <laughs> We will need to access the capacities that have been exiled so that uh, we all can also find joy and vitality in, in places that we have forgotten that, that they exist. So most of the forecast is, is a forecast of difficulty, of a lot of pain, um, of discomfort for a lot of people. And... Um, of, of increased violence in many cases. But unless we develop the capacity to face this with stamina and enjoy and depth and um, maturity, sobriety, accountability, responsibility, <laughs> and humility, um, we, we may end up in a, in a, in a very um, destructive place. But if we can activate uh, this, these other sensibilities and these other capacities for hold space for these things um, and walk with the storm that we need to face together, I think there's, there's much to be learned and much to be experienced in terms of creating new possibilities for existence as we offer palliative care and as we hospice what is dying, as we learn to, <laughs> to face death in a different way, as we shift our relationship with pain. And, and in these two processes, I think um, the, both the learning to face death in a different way, we're not only facing the death of the system, but also our own. And part of the, the thing, the, the, the teachings that we've, we've had with the indigenous communities we work with is that living well is not separated from dying well and combining the living and the dying and not being haunted by pain but also seeing pain as a, an inevitable teacher 
in all of this um, is something that we, these are lessons that we have forgotten and that we need to remember. So that um, this sense of responsibility and accountability is not just enacted as an intellectual choice, but as a visceral embodied thing. It's not a choice. It is something that will happen um, and that will come through you once you declutter all these distractions and, um, and addictions, especially the addiction to consumption of everything, right? And when I talk about consumption, I'm not only talking about consumption of stuff, but I'm talking about consumption of relationships, consumption of experiences, consumption of critique, consumption of... Um, ideas about the end of the world, as we know it. <laughs> so it, it's about a, a recalibration of our internal compass of vitality, but fundamentally how we sense ourselves as part of something much bigger than ourselves. And uh, as we sense our temporality, not just related to our lives, our individual lives, but um, to the greater metabol the metabolic life of the planet um, itself, and not just of human beings, but but of non-human um, entities as well. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know that uh, since I've been sort of studying you, I know what a rich teaching you're trying to bring forward in like 10 scant minutes. Um, but I, I do want to probe this, you know, because the question is, what could possibly go right as an observation, not as a evocation, you know, I mean, what you're talking about that I've come to the awareness over doing these interviews that the transformation that's going to be happening is going to happen over lifetimes. It not my lifetimes, but generations, you know, that this is not somebody, something we're going to get right <laughs> very <laughs> soon. Um, nonetheless, um, there are people who have, who've um, gone further along this path, whether it's the indigenous communities you're working with or indigenous communities around the world, or, you know, <laughs> you know, retired school teachers tending their gardens, you know, I mean, it's not, it, there are people who are already on this journey, you know, and they've, They've already, they know the water's up to their bum. Um, and they also feel a sense of responsibility to basically, you know, be lifeguards or whatever you want to call it. Um, so, and I love the, I love that you actually use this metaphor of the river or the, the flood because it's similar to the Hopi prophecy that we've been imbued with over the last decades, you know, and, you know, the river is getting swift. We, we let go of the bank, let go of trying to stand up and just find your people. So the question I'm trying to get around to really is, where do you see this capacity for holding space for the changes emerging? Um, and, and people who are decluttering and, and, and creating the conditions in their lives and in their communities. Where is this, what, where is this happening? And 
where are people, can people look not just to run off and join the commune, but where can they look to see, okay, I see how people are preparing for these changes that you're talking about. This is, a, this, I think this is a very important question um, because in my experience with groups uh, working in alternative education, for example, or social innovation, both in, in terms of the environment, in, in terms of society, it's very easy to fall back into the same paradigm and think that you're innovating when um, what is actually driving this is, is something else. So when I've seen the water reaching the bump <laughs> of, of people, you, you see um, a shedding of arrogance that, um, that is actually very rare <laughs> in this in this work. I saw it the last time with somebody uh, who was in the middle of the fires in California and had lost her, her house. Um, and, 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 and at that moment realized um, the pain, a collective pain that she hadn't um, paid attention to before. Um, I also saw it in, in young people I've worked with who could see the school trying to numb, but felt a pain that was described as a phantom limb pain that then was explained by indigenous people as collective pain that could not be named in mainstream culture. So this collective pain can only be held with collectivized hearts. An individual heart is overwhelmed by collective pain. So the capacities um, for this kind of work usually happen through a painful incidence um, that makes it impossible for us to disconnect with a deeper level of pain um, that, and, and to take that pain as a teacher. And that level of arrogance um, where your narcissistic mirror breaks. It's not about your self-image anymore. It's not about becoming even a role model anymore. You see yourself in the middle of the complexity of everything. And you need to, we say, in order to help, we say we need to see ourselves as cute and pathetic in this enormity of, of what's going on, right? So figuring out, seeing yourself from a very different standpoint, allowing the um, these affective forecasts that we have of fear, of insecurity, um, of, of, of wanting uh, an expansion, always an expansion of entitlements uh, or unrestricted autonomy to shift towards this desire or yearning for, um, for, it's not a yearning for, it's a yearning that manifests responsibility, but it's a yearning for health for healing and, and for a different kind of joy that, is, that cannot be consumed because it, it comes, it, it interpolates, <laughs> it appears uh, and, and um, transpasses you. So, and it's not a choice. Um, it's not a choice between either doing this or doing that. And it's not being done um, for people to feel good or look good or move forward. It's, it's done 
for its own integrity. So it's, we, we, in our project, we talk about accessing this medicine that we all have, this medicine, these different medicines, and learning to cook it and to integrate it with other medicines so that when we act, we do not act out of self-interest. We act out of the bio-intelligence or the metabolic intelligence. And we do what needs to be done rather than what we want to do. So decentering the ego, um, disarming effective landmines, decluttering existence and getting out of the distractions so that we can disinvest in the pleasures <laughs> of what's dying and um, be able to create and hold space for everything that wants to be born without suffocating it with our projections and expectations and anticipations is something that um, we are trying, we all, I think, trying to learn how to do it. And having events forcing us uh, in this direction, um, then, then uh, I think <laughs> the, it, it, it looks like an evocation, but um, I think in indigenous perspectives on, on the use of language, an invocation is also a manifestation of something, right? So language is not something that describes something, it's, it, it moves uh, the world. It's an entity, it's a living entity that moves the world. So by saying what, what we observe, but also what, um, what needs to move, <laughs> we are moving it in many ways. Right? So the call for maturity, for sobriety, accountability, responsibility, humility, uh, for shedding arrogance um, and for being together in, in, in very different ways, for the interruption of the addiction to consumption, for um, growing up uh, and showing up differently to each other and to the world at large, I think is at the core of what we've, we've been trying to learn. And, and we know how difficult it is. Yeah. I, I, I love that you're talking about maturity because this has been my intuition that um, it's a question of maturation mm -hmm. and um, that a rite of passage, you know, like mm -hmm. think of rites of passage and you think, oh, I'm going to go and some holy person is going to put me up in the mountain for three days and I'll have a vision and then all will be well. But really it's, it's um, like a fire, like your house burn to the ground and these are or like um a loss of a partner or a child mm -hmm. uh these are like major disruptions in the continuity of your story and you have to make sense of them and what you used to make used to make sense of things isn't available to you anymore mm -hmm. and and so it is in a way not to be too lofty but in a way this sort of crisis that we're in the sort of 2020 shit show you know that we're in this is a collective um uh sort of ejection from the tribe and out into the forest to find mm -hmm. out whether we're gonna sink or swim or live or die whether whatever we have in us is sufficient to the moment um and in a way also what i'm hearing is that there are peoples who who've gone through this dissolution when when 
Western society, you know, Western society landed in the Americas, you know, there was a way of life that went through this dissolution and, you know, has reconstituted the, the groups as best they can. And now, you know, now the, the, the trials have come to the doors of the, the privileged people. And when I say privileged, I don't mean like, you know, like the 1%, you know, it's sort of like the global 20%, the people who thought that participation, our success of participation in the dominant story mm-hmm. would protect us, you know, and, and the protection is cracking. Yeah. And so there's something I'm hearing in what you're saying about what could possibly go right is really that acceptance that the story of of separation and control that is really the story that we all, you know, that we put ourselves together and we have, you know, all of this stuff we've packed around us, material and immaterial, that that stuff is is starting to crack it's not like the institutions are cracking it's Mm -hmm. the institutions in us Mm -hmm. and um i know a couple years ago when i really when i really faced oh my god we're not going to fix this Mm -hmm. no matter how hard we try we're not fixing it and everything i'd done for 30 years was like trying to fix it Mm -hmm. (laughs) so it's like i've been going through myself that whole dissolution of the specialness that comes from being even a cultural scout, you know, mm-hmm. of, of having something to say out there on the edge. Mm-hmm. So it's a big thing that we're in. And I, I really appreciate um, the, it's like your finger pointing at something, not, not a thing, but at a process that we are confronted with. We don't get to say that the, dam hasn't broken and that we're now up to our ankles we don't have any say over that but we do have a say we do have a say over how we um how we swim when the water reaches our bum so if we're going to just hold the refrigerator (laughs) (laughs) right yeah Yeah. float downstream on your car and your refrigerator and the roof of your house etc so yeah it's a it's a big task that we have again ahead of us to let the river wash out sort of that that mindset of control anyway we're 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 at our our end and uh but i want to give you a chance if there's one something that you want to say to wind it up that'd be great I think something you said about uh, maturity and, and um, in indigenous cultures, we, we human beings are perceived to be the youngest of all other relations and of you, you, the human beings, Western culture is perceived to be the youngest <laughs> of all relations. So a collective rite of passage that interrupts a form of self-infantilization that has been having out of this protection that you talked about is something that just came up for me as a possible way to explain it as well. So um, from, um, from, from a mountain of warriors to a mountain of, of, of providers um, mm-hmm. would be the way that um, I've heard it being explained in, in, um, in indigenous storytelling. So mm-hmm. this invitation to eldership this invitation to see, for example, education from the day you were born as, um, as, a, as equipping people or preparing people 
for becoming good elders and good ancestors after they pass away for all relations is, is something that we have, we have been missing. And, and that trajectory, I think, is, is being presented to us um, by breaking our blessings. How exciting. Everything's <laughs> falling apart. <laughs> anyway, thank you so, so yeah. much. I really appreciate this. I, I feel like I'm surfing on the edge of your knowledge and I'm really, really going with you. So thank you. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review, which will help this hopeful message get out to more people. And check out the Post Carbon Institute website for show notes and for more guest information. Thanks to all our donors for their support. Thanks also to Cher Miller, Amy Boringrud, and Clara Winter at Post Carbon Institute, plus production assistant Michelle Wig from frugalityandfreedom.com.